soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. And so that's how chapter 13 ended. And as you come to chapter 14, Chedorlaomer, who comes from what is now modern Iran, he came with a coalition of kings, and they had been charging tribute to the people, the kings of the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, for 13 years. And so they come down when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah decide they're not going to pay their tributes anymore, and they're ready to declare war, and they're ready for a rumble. So Chedorlaomer comes down with his group, And they rout the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they take all the people with them and all the goods and all the wealth, including Lot, Abram's nephew. So the news comes to Abram that his nephew Lot has been taken captive by Chedorlaomer. And so tonight we're going to pick up our story, our text, from that element. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebin, the trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother, that would be Lot, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich." except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And this is the story of Abram's great triumph and the introduction to us of one of the most mysterious, important people in the Bible, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, in the very next chapter... It says that God appeared to Abram and said, I am, do not be afraid, which generally means we are. Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So we know from what we've seen so far with Abram leading up to this, this event, a military commando raid, very successful one, 
and certainly life-threatening, and one on behalf of others to rescue them. And then on the heels of all that, the priests, Melchizedek, the kings of Sodom, and then when it all kind of settles, after you have something super intense and super emotional, like a, a life-changing experience, combat, something like that, and of course, you would, this certainly is combat, so we can look for the type of post-traumatic stress that you might have from something like this. When it all settles down, and then God says, hey, I'm your shield, and I'm your great reward. And even though that's next week's passage for Tuesday night, it is worth noting in the fullness of the context here of what's going on. So tonight, as we think about this passage, I would call this give and take, okay? Things are given, and things are not taken. And if there ever is a contrast of what winners face, or champions, because everyone loves a winner, and Abram's a winner, it's the contrast of Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, standing there about the same time the king of Sodom is standing there as well. We read in the previous verse, verse 17, that the king came out to him, Sodom, Gomorrah, those guys. And they would be slightly embarrassed because they were defeated. And I didn't tell you this, when they were attacked by Chedomar, they fled. The kings fled to save their skin and the people were taken away. So that'd be kind of embarrassing. They didn't lead from the front. And then Melchizedek comes out, and we go back to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So in this gap here, we have this Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is crucial to us in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is what we call a type, or he could be a theophany, which is an appearance of Christ, a Christophany, or theophany as it could be called, in the Old Testament. For example, when... Joshua is getting ready to engage the battle against Jericho. There stood the general, the commander of the Lord's army, and Joshua said to him, are you for us or against us? And he goes, no, but as the commander of the Lord's army, I've now come. Joshua fell on his knees and worshipped him, and the general, the commander, accepted that worship. And angels don't accept the worship, just so you know. So there's, there's different types of theophanies, and whether it's a vision or something of that sort, or a type. We know in Colossians that all the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus coming to live a perfect sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our, and to rise from the grave for our hope and justification. Colossians says it's a shadow of things to come. So whether this is an Old Testament appearance of Christ, which is possible, or a type of Christ, which is absolute, Melchizedek is very, very important to us in understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ for our personal salvation. So we need to take a good look at him tonight because this is where he's introduced to us. So let's talk about this person, Melchizedek. We're told he's the king of Salem. That's the prelude to Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem. Well, who's the ultimate king of Jerusalem? Who's going to reign on Mount Zion? Jesus Christ. He's ultimate king. All the kings... After David, when David tried to build the temple and God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. And God promised King David around 1000 BC that from him and his offspring would come the king whose reign would never end. And that king, of course, is Jesus Christ. And all those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah coming to rule and reign on the earth, they're coming to pass in his second coming. He came the first time as a servant to die on the cross for our sins, but he's coming the second time as the king to reign over the earth. He shall reign over all the earth. It's very clear in the Old Testament prophecies. And so the king of Salem here, Melchizedek, 
is a prelude to when Jerusalem would be the main city and there would be kings. He precedes it. He came with the communion elements, which is timely tonight, seeing as we're going to be having communion. But he came with the bread and the wine, which would be a sign of the fellowship in the Middle Eastern culture. Again, these are events around 2000 B.C., so 2,000 years before Christ, 1,000 years before David, and 4,000 years from our timeline right now. But it, to the Lord, he's not linear. He's outside of it. So 1,000 days, 1,000 years is a day with the Lord. But just for our timeline to understand these things. So Melchizedek is the king, and he's the priest of God Most High. Now, in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, which comes 500 years after this story, you have priests... They're all of the Levites. And then later on, about 400, 500 years later, you have kings. But you don't have kings that are priests. In fact, you get someone like Uzziah, who is a king that thinks he can be a priest. He goes in the temple and he turns into leprosy. They are distinct and different. But here, Melchizedek, who comes to Abram, the father of faith, the patriarch of all Jews, and the patriarch, really the father of those of faith in Jesus Christ, we're told in the New Testament. And he's presented as a king of Salem, which means peace, by the way. And of course, Jesus is the prince of peace. And he's a high priest, of the, uh, he's the high priest, a priest of the most high God. He has the communion elements. We're told that he blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram. He pronounced blessings on Abram. And he blessed God. So he blessed Abram and he blessed God. This is what we get contextually from him. And of course, Abram tithed to him, which we'll get to. A thousand years later, when King David lived, and he's a prophet, we're told King David's a prophet. Peter in Acts chapter 2 tells us that David is a prophet. Of course he was, because he wrote a good portion of scripture. And God spoke through David, you know, that famous Psalm 110, where he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, in a reference to Jesus Christ. It's clearly Jesus Christ. And then in the same context, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek here, a thousand years. That's 10 centuries. Nothing ever again of Melchizedek, this mysterious king and priest who appeared to Abram. But God speaks prophetically through David that his son Jesus Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, if that was just there, it'd be one of those passages when you go through your Bible, you go like, wow, that's really, yeah, like, wow. Or as Chuck would say back in the 70s, far out, right? Just, wow. But then in the book of Hebrews, we get more on this, and this is important. Because this Melchizedek, this is the one time we get him until we get to the poetic books, which will be quite some time. So we need to understand him and how he applies to our faith tonight as we're gathered here in Jesus' name. So in the book of Hebrews, when the Holy Spirit was leading the writer to help people understand that we're saved by faith, not by works of the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, but that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And once we have Jesus, we don't go back to being Jews. This, of course, was a challenge in the early church and the book of Acts records much of this for us. But the challenge was, since the Jews received Jesus, or he came to the Jews first, and the apostles were Jewish, and the early church was all Jewish in the book of Acts, 
that as they began to be led by the Holy Spirit to see non-Jews or partial Jews, Samaritans, mixed ethnicity and religious beliefs, they came to the Lord. And then the Gentiles, all non-Jews, began to come to the Lord, like in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, that Peter and the apostles who were there had to defend that, that God was saving Gentiles or the nations. But God had prophesied all along that the gospel wasn't just for Jews, but for the nations. And that's why when Paul wrote the Romans, he said the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentiles. But we're all saved through faith. So now, when the author of Hebrews is writing this letter, he's writing to believers in Jesus Christ who are of a Jewish background, who've received Christ, and they're supposedly saved by faith and grace, just like the Gentiles, like Titus and Timothy. But then they're like, well, you know, it's not that easy just to be saved by faith. You've got to do works. You gotta, it's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus baptism in our name. It's Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's Jesus plus church only on Saturday. Like all the things that people come up with these days in the church that make us weird and quirky and ungodly and divisive. It's religion. Jesus plus this. But you see, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when we stand justified on the day of the Lord, when we breathe our last, it won't be Jesus plus anything. It'll be you looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. It'll be you declared righteous because you received Christ when you heard the gospel. It'll be you declared righteous at the end of your journey because you kept your eyes and you kept your faith and your focus on Jesus Christ, not on you. We go up and down, but the righteousness of God that is imputed or given to us when we receive Christ is a perfect, complete righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And it's with us throughout our entire journey, the common denominator that we have tonight as we gather in his name. We are perfectly, fully saved because of who he is, not what you've done or the kind of week you've had or what you're going to do on Monday. But you're saved through faith. It's not Jesus plus you being good on Monday. It's Jesus crucified for your sins, and Jesus risen for your justification and seated at the right hand of Father to ever live and intercede for us. And the problem with the context of the epistle to the Hebrews is like, well, it's Jesus plus being circumcised, and we better circumcise these Gentiles. So you tell Titus, get in here and get circumcised. And Paul said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. Titus is saved by grace through faith. He's not saved because he becomes, he didn't become a Christian so he could become a Jew and put himself under the law. He's saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this was the conflict of the early church. And it's there for us in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. So as these Hebrew believers, Jewish believers, began to be persecuted and lose property and finances and be uh, expunged from their neighborhoods and families and estates and all this stuff, they began to say, well, okay, we're still good Jews. We're still like, you know, we're circumcised. We keep the law of Moses. We're kosher. We're these things. We don't eat meat offered idols. You know, we don't eat bacon, God forbid, and all these different things that were going backwards. So when the Holy Spirit was leading the author of Hebrews to write to them, he said, he's telling them, you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not Jesus plus circumcision and the Old Testament law. It's you and Jesus. And so to affirm this position of justification through faith by grace, he appeals to Melchizedek. And that's why he's so important to us. That's why he is so important to us, because he's a type of Christ, if not Jesus himself, appeared in the Old Testament. So in building a case about Melchizedek, put your thinking caps on. This is really important. Because if any of you want to depart from grace... 
I would say to you, like Paul said to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, would you be perfected in the flesh? No one on my watch in this church should depart from grace to go to the works of the law, to become a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist and add some type of yoke of legalism to your faith. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you can get weird and religious and think you can save yourself. But Melchizedek came 2,000 years before Christ came so you would know that your confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised for you personally. In writing the Hebrews, building the case for Jesus being saved by grace, not Jesus plus Old Testament law and being a Jew and being circumcised and keeping the Ten Commandments, which no one can keep anyways. He said this. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 5, it says, So Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was he that is the Father who said of him, now quoting Psalm 110, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Also, he says in another place, that would be the same psalm, you are a priest forever, speaking of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, now speaking of Jesus, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, the father who was able to save him from the death, that would be the death of a cross, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected or completed, he became the author, this is Jesus, of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God, Jesus that is, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Melchizedek type is also reflected between the father and the son. And he says, I'd like to tell you more about this, but you're hard of hearing. And then he comes back to it, another chapter. So now is what he says in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, and Melchizedek first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, that is Melchizedek, remains a priest continually. So see how he's compared now to Jesus? There's no genealogy for Melchizedek. We don't have his parents. We don't know where he came from. There's nothing. It's like he's like eternal. He's outside the dimension that comes into dimension or something like that. By the way, this is why many people believe and speculate that Melchizedek might actually be an angel. Because he has no beginning or ending in the timeline of, of time, space, and matter. There's no record of parents. And by the way, with the Jews, genealogy is everything, right? How many times have we seen a genealogy so far in, in Genesis? I mean, we get a genealogy every couple chapters. Melchizedek has no genealogy here or anywhere else. And here's the comparison to Jesus. It's very important. Stay with me. Verse 4, chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, now talking about the Jews and the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, the priest, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the Old Testament law, that is, from their brethren, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he who received, excuse me, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser 
is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, talking about the Jewish priesthood. But there he receive them of whom is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, here's where you have to think and stay with me. This is really important. So, 1500 BC, God gives the Jews the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, the Levitical priesthood, uh, the Jewish feasts and holidays, the animal sacrificial system, and then the civil law, how to govern a nation, kidnapping, murder, rape, all that kind of stuff, how you deal with these things, and how to have a civil society, how to enforce law. The law had three portions. The portion of the religious part, the animal sacrifices and the holidays that all represent Christ, they were entrusted to the Levites. So remember, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and here is Levi. And from that 12, one of those 12 tribes, all the priests of the Old Testament did their service. You couldn't just say, I want to be a priest. It's like, well, if you're not from the tribe of Levi, you can't be a priest. So if you're from Naphtali or Zebulun or Gad or or Asher or whatever, it's like, no. No, but I want to be a priest. You can't be a priest. You had to come, you had to be a Jew. And so that means you came from Father Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And you had to be from the tribe of Levi. The Levites were entrusted with the priesthood. So from 1500 B.C. till the time Christ came, the Levites did the priesthood. The animal sacrifices, they did the Passover lambs for the people in the public square during the holidays. They did all that stuff. And so the Hebrews in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, they're like, well, we're going back to the law. And the writer of Hebrews is going like, God's saying, why would you do that? Why would you go to an inferior priesthood with animal sacrifices that could never take away your sins? I gave you a superior priesthood through my son, Jesus Christ, who ever lives and reigns as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites. So here's the visual. When Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek from the spoil, he gave a tenth, a tithe. All Israel's within him. From his loins comes Isaac, Jacob, and all the descendants. As we saw in the previous chapter, his descendants will be like the sands of the sea or the dust of the earth. Every Jew traces their genealogy to Abraham, including the Levites. And so the point of the Holy Spirit is that when Abraham gave his tenth to Melchizedek, the one that gives is always inferior to the superior. So he's bowing the knee to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is clearly the superior in this situation. Abraham's bowing the knee and giving the tithe. So the one receiving the tithe is greater than the one giving it. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than all the descendants of Abraham, including the Levites. So the priesthood of the Levites is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek because the priesthood of the Levites is in the loins of Abraham and he's bowing the knee on behalf of every Jew to Melchizedek, who's a superior priesthood. And God says in Psalm 110 that Jesus is a priest according to the Lord Melchizedek, of which there's no beginning or ending. It precedes the Levitical priesthood and it's superior to it and it's eternal. It's an eternal priesthood. So that's why Melchizedek is such a, a mysterious, important person to us in the Bible. And it warrants an entire night on a Saturday night to understand who he is because he is a type of Christ. And he affirms to us, the story of Melchizedek affirms to us that you and I, when we have to face the grave and we're dying of cancer or dying of old age, that we face it with Jesus Christ, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of the priesthood, which puts the burden on us to save ourselves. But the burden is on Jesus Christ, who's already saved us. And that's the significance 
of Melchizedek. He's a type, a shadow of things to come. Christ came 2,000 years later, but halfway to there, 1,000 B.C., God spoke through David that his son, the Messiah, would be of the order of Melchizedek. And here in the New Testament, warning these ethnic Jewish Christians from going backwards to the Old Testament. He's like, why would you do that? Why would you go backwards? In fact, he goes on to say this about this, the order of Melchizedek. He said, Jesus, in verse 22 of Hebrews 7, it says, by so much more, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant because he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites. Jesus couldn't be a a priest according to the Levites because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which is the line of the kings. But he is a king and a priest because his priesthood is not from the Levites. His priesthood is from Melchizedek, which is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. So he's the king and the priest of our salvation. He's not only the author and finisher of our faith, he's the king of our faith and he's the priest of our faith. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.